Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the lead carriers for less and for a limited time new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code month free by may 31st so why keep spending more than you have to seriously wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit consumercellular.com taxes fees and other third-party charges will apply see website for additional details Hello, hello, fellow nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host of yours, she who loves Euripides with her entire soul, Liv. Once again, I know that this play is not by Euripides, and yet here I am making it all about him. But it really is all about him, even if he had nothing to do with writing it. At least, as far as we know. This week, we're diving back into Aristophanes' play, the Thesmophoria Zeusai, the women at the Thesmophoria, or even the women at the festival. Yes, it has been translated into very many titles. Regardless, it's the play about the women's only festival, the one I detailed last week, and where Aristophanes has Euripides becoming the subject of the women's ire. Where we last left off, we met this fictional version of Euripides and his father-in-law, Menesilicus, They've traveled to the tragedian Agathon's house, where Euripides hoped to ask him to dress as a woman to infiltrate the festival and convince the women there that they don't want Euripides dead. Because, you see, they might want him dead for how he portrays women in his plays, which is the slander that we will get back to and which we have not seen the end of. One of the hardest things about writing episodes dedicated to Aristophanes' plays is just trying to convey the comedy. He was seriously funny in 
in certain plays. I say that I typed this before I read enough of this play. I don't believe it's true in this play. The Frogs was funny. Anyway, uh, they were, at least back then, <laughs> and some of them are today, really, truly laugh out loud funny. But trying to convey any of that in a narrative structure like mine is tricky. So while these episodes are an interesting way to look at the story and events and maybe a few of the jokes in this play, you know, if you really want to get the full comedy of it all, you should read an Aristophanes play or two yourselves. Again, I said that before I read all of this. I have... <laughs> I don't know how I feel right now. You're going to get it. It's fine. Um, but, you know, if you want the full experience of of this ancient comedian, read one of the plays. <laughs> that said, as I talked about at the very end of last week's episode, translation of plays is, or translation broadly, plays a huge role in comedy. And so the translation I'm using primarily is by George Theodoridis, and it certainly amps up the absurdity, the crass and crude and very colloquial language and what I'll call the menisilicus of it all. That translation is available for free online. I've linked to it. So if you want to read it yourself, have at it. Another thing I've learned the further I get into this play hmm, is that just like, so it is a bit problematic in today's climate, a bit more than I expected, uh, though perhaps I should have expected it. There's a certain subset of people who could see the plot of this play as affirming some of their nastier theories. So we, before we dive back into this narrative, let me just remind you, lovely listeners, of one of the things that this podcast finds to be most important in the world and that I stand for. Uh, trans people and their right to exist however they want. Here at Let's Talk About Miss Baby, we accept and affirm trans people for who they are, and we stand very strongly and angrily against the type of people who would try to deny that and I want to call them TERFs, but I also hate that they get to call themselves feminists. So, you know, those people, the shitty ones who think that people should not be allowed to live their lives in the way that they feel is most true to themselves. How this is a controversial topic, I will never understand. But, you know, I'm not with those people that stand with um, that author or that author herself. Uh, the one, you know, I used to praise before she showed her true nature. The one who will not be named. My point is that trans women are women and not a threat to cis women. The main threat to both are cisgendered men. But this is a comedy, even if it's a comedy that plays with gender in a very 4th century BCE type of way. So let's remember that. This is from the 4th century BCE, and while and, and it's Aristophanes... Psh, psh, and while myths do often feature what we would understand to be trans people now, if trans people were on Aristophanes' mind when he wrote this play, he had a very different viewpoint. And also, as you'll find out in this coming conversation episode on Friday, Aristophanes was um, seemingly a bit of a conservative douchebag. So let's return to where we last, last left off last week. Uh, a very fictional version of Euripides is trying to infiltrate a women's only festival in an effort to convince them, well, not to kill him. And last we heard was the importance of translation and just how much it can affect how we see these plays and their characters. We finished last week's episode with our introduction to the character of Agathon, the fictional version of a very real tragedian whose work, also tragically, does not survive for us today, but who very much existed. Agathon exited his house and practiced singing one of his own choral odes. 
He sang as a woman singing to Demeter and Persephone, to Artemis and Leto, among others. And Menceladus, who's already made some very judgy comments about Agathon's gender expression, announced loudly, among other things, quote, By the holy gods of fucking, by Gentilides herself, what a horny song, full of ardor. And if you're wondering about the so-called holy god of fucking, Gentilides, that word means of childbirth. So while we, it wasn't necessarily like that there was a literal god of fucking, it's not an enormous leap. Episode 201, Egregious Euripides' Slander, Aristophanes' Women of the Thesmophoria. Now Aristophanes spends a lot of this play playing around with gender expression. Agathon is an explicitly feminized character, and Menesilicus is not subtle in his comments on it. Many things that he says would today be construed as transphobia, but obviously that wasn't the case back then, and it really is meant to be both an attempt to play around with gender expression and a means of commenting on Agathon himself and his sexuality. I can't say anything about the very real man, but the Agathon of this play is meant to just be an over-the-top guy who enjoys playing with gender, who uh, Aristophanes seems to judge pretty heavily, who appear, who appreciates femininity. Uh, I'm going to be as conscious as possible when sharing certain bits and quotes, but I want to explain that at the top. We don't know about the real Agathon in this case. Uh, the version of him that Aristophanes presents is almost certainly meant as an insult, but frankly, he sounds amazing. Also, Menesilicus is just a bit of a twat, frankly, and but he is the one we are supposed to like. <laughs> we need to navigate him. Again, that is the point of him. He's both the comic relief in a way, and he's meant as a kind of foil to point out the ways in which Agathon plays with his gender expression. And once he's talked all about the pussies and tongues of Agathon's song, as I quoted you all last week, Menesilicus goes on to comment directly on Agathon's clothing and general appearance. This is important because it gives us, and the audience, an idea of what Agathon was dressed like on the stage, something we don't know otherwise because, remember, there are no stage directions in ancient Greek plays. Everything you read is invented by the translators based on the context. But in moments like these, when Menesilicus says that Agathon is holding a lyre in one hand, wearing a hairnet on his head, and a girdle around his waist, we get this distinct impression that he presents himself as spanning both masculine and feminine ideals. He's explicitly dressed as both a man and a woman, as they would have been in ancient Athens. Of course, Menesilicus criticizes him for it and just questions his taste in appearance. Fortunately, Agathon gives zero fucks, which is his best quality. He explains very patiently to Menesilicus that he simply wears what he wants and that he isn't bothered by the man's judgment and jabs. Quote, I, Agathon, wear only the clothes that suit my inspiration. And he goes on to explain that he's writing about women and thus he's dressed as a woman. It gets him into the mindset. The pair go on as Agathon explains that he's not the first to do this. Other great poets have done the same. He speaks of the poets Ibicus, Anacreon, and Alcaeus, saying they, quote, 
spiced up their poems with all the harmony their muse could muster. Well, all these poets used to wear lovely little girls' caps and used to swing their little bums like little Ionian girls. And then he demonstrates exactly that, giving a little shimmy. Finally, though, Euripides interrupts to explain his predicament to Agathon, telling him how the women at the Thesmophoria Festival have planned to convene and pass judgment upon him. He says, quote, I have said some nasty things about women, so today, this very day, they'll all gather at the Temple of Demeter, and, well, they'll devise a plot to have me utterly and terminally destroyed. He goes on to explain that his plan involves Agathon dressed as a woman, infiltrating the Thesmophoria to mount his defense. And why don't you do it? Agathon asks in response. I mean, look at me, Euripides replies. I'm an old man with a beard. I couldn't do it. But you, you're young and handsome with that clean-shaven face, and you already enjoy dressing as a woman. Clearly, you're better suited. I imagine Agathon rolls his eyes here, because while Euripides is stating the truth and the obvious, Agathon tells him, quote, Well, don't expect us now to suffer the consequences of your actions. He goes on, quote, Embrace them, Euripides. Be honest about them. Suffer them. And eventually, Euripides asks him why he really doesn't want to do this. Why is Agathon afraid of going to the festival on his behalf? Agathon says that they'll ruin him. Before he explains when Euripides asks what on God's earth that means, quote, Darling, I will be so beautiful, so much more beautiful than any of them, that they'll think that I will be stealing all of their whoring business, that I'd be running off with the goddess Aphrodite herself. Do I love the frequent use of the word whore in this play? Not remotely. I'll only use it when I'm quoting, to be perfectly clear. Still, sex work aside, I do love the idea that this guy had so much confidence in himself that he legitimately thinks the women will be angry because he's too beautiful. I really do love Agathon. Anyway, Agathon is very clear. He is not going to help Euripides. And though Euripides presses it just briefly, he quickly moves on to assuming that it's all over for him. Without Agathon in disguise, he is sure to be killed by these women. Unless. Well, right about now is when Menesilochus tells Euripides that basically, Agathon can go to hell and he'll help Euripides in whatever way he can. Quote, let me help you. I'll do anything you want. Anything? And so Euripides gets an idea. He walks around Monosilicus, taking him in, coming up with a plan, and it's going to include shaving down Monosilicus, just ridding him of all of his body hair. Because, you know, that's what it'll take to convince a room full of women that there isn't an old man in their midst, just the beard. <laughs> Monosilicus is briefly hesitant to agree to this, but he is loyal to Euripides, so. He quickly agrees to what's being asked. And with that, Euripides nods at Menesilochus before turning to Agathon and saying, quote, Agathon, you're always carrying razors around, don't you? Could you let me borrow one for a minute? <laughs> to which Agathon replies, yeah, uh, there's my case of razors right over there. Have at it. 
I really love Agathon. Like, I know he's this fictional version of him, and ultimately Aristophanes is trying to make fun of his lifestyle and general personality, but it just makes me more and more intrigued by the real Agathon. He seems like a fun guy, if this is what Aristophanes is choosing to satirize. Euripides goes at Menesilicus with the razor. He's rough with him, trying to shave off his beard before Menesilicus yelps in pain and briefly tries to run from Euripides with half of his beard shorn off. He's brought back, though, convinced he needs to remain to help Euripides with his very poor backup plan. And eventually, Euripides succeeds. Menesilicus is now beardless. And this is a real issue for Greek men. So he immediately makes a wry joke about how he'll be thrown into the light infantry of the Athenian army. Itself a pun in the ancient Greek. Just a fact to us. <laughs> He's clean shaven. He looks like a young man again. Fortunately, Euripides is there to tell him that he's going to look very pretty. He grabs a mirror from Agathon's things and shows Menesilicus his new beardless look. The man's reaction is to call out, quote, I look like pretty boy Cleisthenes. We will hear more about Cleisthenes again, but like most of Aristophanes' characters, he's a very real person who was often satirized for, like Agathon, being both effeminate and being what one of these translations calls passively homosexual. Again, it's just the thing about the ancient Greeks being totally cool with gay relationships when it comes to the penetrator versus the penetrated. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of jokes about that. I'll stop reminding you the context now. With Menesilicus' beard gone, Euripides moves on. He's decided, you see, that Menesilicus needs to be hairless elsewhere as well. Hey, you! He calls to Agathon's enslaved person. Hey, would you grab me a torch? He's given the torch, and he turns back to Menesilicus. Quote, now bend over. And with that, Euripides begins to singe the hair off of Menesilicus's ass. A thing I did not expect to have to share with you all. Why did I pick this play again? Menesilicus cries out, running around the stage frantically, quote, My bum's on fire! 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 Water! Someone! Is there any water in the house? Help! Help me! Before someone else's bum catches fire. I don't like Menesilicus. But he isn't finished complaining. We've got to keep this play moving. Eventually, Euripides takes him down. It's not a big deal. You weren't actually on fire, he says. Then he turns to Agathon, asking, If you're not going to help me, then will you at least lend this man some women's clothes? I know you've got lots. Agathon basically just shrugs and tells them to take whatever they want. He's not bothered. And so they begin to rummage through Agathon's collection, selecting a beautiful yellow dress, which they finagle onto Menesilicus, adding various other elements of women's clothing to really shore up the whole look. He gets a wig, offered specifically by Agathon, a headscarf, some shoes, a cloak, the whole outfit, very fitting for a woman attending such a festival. And lucky them, Agathon just had it all available. <laughs> Once they've sorted the look and Agathon's enjoyed just watching the two men be ridiculous about the whole situation, he asks to be wheeled back into his home, leaving Euripides and Menesilicus to their schemes. With Agathon gone, Euripides takes in Menesilicus and his disguise, examining him before noting, quote, Now, mate, 
Remember to talk like a woman, too. Convince everyone you're a girl. Euripides is about to send Menasilkas off, and just like that, to the festival, but Menasilkas stops him. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not going until you swear that you'll save me from whatever happens in there. That you'll do whatever you need to do to save me. I do appreciate how afraid they are of a festival of women. They're not taking any chances. They know what a bunch of women can do if they're threatened by a man. Euripides, though, is a bit annoyed at having to do so. He agrees to swear by all the gods in heaven, every single one of them, that he'll do his best to save Menasilicus if it comes to it. And in confirmation, Menasilicus quotes Euripides' own words back to him, confirming that he's sworn with both his heart and his head. He doesn't want to be tricked, like in one of Euripides' plays. But Euripides doesn't have a chance to confirm or deny how he's made his oath because bells are ringing nearby, signaling the start of the Thesmophoria. He rushes Menasilicus off towards the temple and himself leaves the stage on the other side. And here is where I tell you that between the two translations I'm using, there is no agreement as to whether Menasilicus has actually had an enslaved woman with him this entire time, who he calls Thrata, or if she's been imaginary. He speaks to her, but maybe she isn't real. Regardless, if she is, she's been there with him and they leave the stage together with him disguised as a woman through all of Euripides' machinations and Agathon's extensive collection of beautiful things. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. quickly returns to the stage, which is now set to be the temple of Demeter and Persephone, the Thesmophorion. Maybe he's got an enslaved woman with him, Thrata? We'll go with that, that she's real. He takes note of all the women attending the festival, comments upon how there's some kind of smoke all around them. He's coughing from it. The festival is beginning and the rituals, it seems, involve smoke. He calls out, quote, Deliciously beautiful goddess, help me survive all this and... Help me get home safe afterwards. He makes an offering to the goddesses, asking Thrata for a sacrificial cake. Then he calls to the goddesses again, quote, Most holy mother Demeter and you too, wise Persephone, make me very, very rich so that I might make you lots of offerings in return. If not, then at least let me get out of this little scheme alive and with my dick intact. Truly did not expect so many dick jokes in a play about a women's festival, but that's my mistake for underestimating Aristophanes. Frankly, I much prefer the tragedies. He goes on to calling the goddesses to help his daughter find a rich husband who's also a moron, and he asks for his son to be given, quote, lots of brains and common sense. Except the names he lists for these so-called children are both plays on their respective genitalia, so either this man named his children after colloquial names for genitals, or Aristophanes is just making more weird jokes that I'm sure would be funnier both on the stage and in the ancient world, but here we are. With that out of the way, he dismisses Thrata, explaining that slaves aren't allowed in the festival, and he settles in to listen to the women's speeches. The chorus later introduces the festival to the group of women attending the chorus, she calls to Demeter and Persephone, she calls to Gaia and to Hermes and to the Graces. She asks for good luck for Athens and that their festival, their gathering, be a successful one. The rest of the chorus chimes in now, calling for signs from the heavens that the gods are happy with their prayers. They call to many of the other gods, to Apollo and Athena, Artemis and Poseidon, the Nereids and forest nymphs, finishing, quote, let us join in harmony the strands of Apollo's golden lyre, and so let this meeting of noble Athenian women end splendidly. The chorus leader resumes her speech. There's more calls to the gods, perhaps in itself a, a means of making fun of Euripides' writing style and reliance on gods, but then she gets explicit. Quote, let us all pray that... If any man schemes a scheme or plots a plot with Euripides and with the Persians to cause harm or to overthrow the women's republic, if any man tries to establish himself or establish some other man as a tyrant of the women's republic, if any man dobs in a woman who has claimed another woman's child as her own, if any female slave has knowledge of her mistress's secret affairs, dobs her into her husband... She goes on and on, getting very specific with her accusations, or rather prayers, against people who might do all these very 
stereotypes of women and men. All of this is both meant to satirize women and men or their opinions of either one and the stereotypes surrounding both genders, but it's also meant to mimic speeches that would take place at Athenian assemblies. These women are seemingly both mirroring the political machinations of Athens and imagining a world where they're the ones running things. It's not entirely clear if that's the intention. My other translation doesn't use that phrase of women's republic, but it's interesting all the same and certainly meant to have women mirroring the politics of Athens, finally being able to insert themselves and form opinions on the world around them. That's my interpretation. It's definitely not what Aristophanes means. (laughs) I'm sure he's making fun of something or someone that I am just not entirely grasping because that is what he does. The rest of the chorus chimes in, adding their own curses towards women who betray others or who betray Athens in ways the leader is just laid out and more. And they end it, quote, Almighty Zeus, we are women, but we ask you, nevertheless, to hear our prayers and bring the rest of the gods to our side and protect us. Love that they have to clarify that they're women. Like, I know we're just women, Zeus, but could you protect us anyway? Pretty please? But this isn't about Zeus, fortunately, and it immediately transitions to the task at hand. At least the task at hand in Aristophanes' exaggerated and invented version of the Thesmophoria. They begin to speak of the gathering that's happened that day, one that is meant to decide the fate of Euripides, who these women consider to be a criminal. Gods, I do hope Euripides was in on whatever joke Aristophanes was making with this play. I don't think he was, but he does not deserve it. Is there anyone who would like to speak on the matter of Euripides' crimes? The chorus asks once they've announced what today is for determining Euripides' guilt. Me, a woman calls immediately. Her name is Mika, and she puts on a garland when she's asked, stands at the head of the group, and prepares herself. The chorus shushes those around, calling for silence and announcing, quote, Mika is clearing her throat, and, like a real politician, she is preparing to make a long speech. And this is where we learn the supposed details of Euripides' crimes, the things these women believe he's done in his plays. And I remind you once more that this is Aristophanes' invention. This Euripides and these women seemingly angry with him are, as far as we know, extremely invented, entirely invented by Aristophanes. Because we all know and agree, Euripides is perfect. <laughs> Mika announces, quote, Is there an insult he hasn't hit us with yet? There is no indignity, not a foul word he hasn't used to sally our name with. Give the bastard an audience, give him a chorus, give him some actors, and there'll be no end to the garbage he'll find to defame us with. She goes on, claiming that Euripides calls women every horrible thing she can imagine. Quote, lecherous seducers of men, alcoholics, chatterboxes, treacherous, sick in the head, a pain in the arse of our husbands, you name it. Then she explains that the real issue is that their husbands then watch Euripides' plays. Because, you know, women aren't allowed, mind you. 
though she doesn't say as much. But the husbands come home to them after watching the plays, and instead of giving their wives a kind word of hello, they give them suspicious looks and begin searching for hidden lovers. The more Mika goes on ranting about Euripides and all the horrible things he's put into the men's heads, the more it becomes clear that the joke here is that, at least with many of the things they claim of Euripides, it isn't so much that he isn't speaking the truth, but that he's giving away all of their secrets. It's harder for them to hide all their lovers now that their husbands are watching Euripides' plays. It's harder for a woman who can't have a baby to pass off another's as her own. It's harder for young women to marry older men. She says that their houses are all now locked up, that the men have hidden everything away, and that they have new, better, Spartan locks and keys. She explains that before, the women knew exactly how to break their husband's locks. It was easy, but not now. She finishes her speech by saying, quote, So I move, therefore, ladies, that we get rid of this disgusting little pest, Euripides, by poisoning him or whatever, or do anything that will definitely knock him dead. Once the applause for her speech has died out, the chorus takes note that, quote, What an intelligent, eloquent, subtle speech this woman just uttered. Subtle indeed. Definitely not Aristophanes playing on the nature of politicians and their speeches and insulting women at that. They praise her a bit more, comparing her to politicians of the time, noting the sheer perfection of her speech and her argument. And she's not alone. Another woman takes the garland and has her own speech about why Euripides should be punished. She acknowledges the things that he's said about women, but her own complaint is that she believes he's convinced too many Athenian men not to believe in the gods. She says that now they all believe there are no gods, and that affects her garland-selling business. How it affects it, I do not know, and the end notes do not elaborate on that, so we must either trust her or trust that Aristophanes is making some additional commentary here. She does finish the speech by saying that she has to go because 20 men have ordered garlands and she must go weave them. So I don't know, maybe business isn't that bad? She also tosses in an insult to Euripides that's used quite often. He gets made fun of for having a father who sold vegetables, or perhaps specifically, who sold cabbage. No one likes a cabbage seller, I guess? Once more, the chorus praises this woman's speech. They have no complaints and announce that she made her argument perfectly. It's all been made quite clear that Euripides simply must be punished for his myriad crimes. And this, this is when Menesilicus makes himself known. He rushes to the stage prepared to mount a strong defense of his son-in-law. And frankly, he's been the most obnoxious character so far. But at least someone's going to defend my beloved Euripides against the Aristophanian slander? I think I'm going to regret saying that because his defender is still written by Aristophanes. And, well, that's pretty clear because Menesilicus fills his defensive speech with more weird stereotypes of how, we are to believe, women speak and behave. He says things like, Girls, girls, girls. Oh, believe me, girls. I understand you completely. Golly gosh, darlings. 
gross. Anyway, uh, he goes on. He is disguised as a woman, mind you. He tells the women that he agrees with them completely. Euripides is awful. I hate him completely, he says. I swear on my own children that I do actually hate him. I promise. Gods, he's convincing, isn't he? But he says after this strong reassurance that he too hates Euripides. He promises he really hates him. He's bad. <laughs> he says, let's, let's think about this. Let's think about this really closely. It's only women here, he reassures them. No one else will ever know what's been said. He asks, what's the point of all these accusations? Like, sure, he's given away a few of our secrets, but gods know he knows more of them that he's keeping silent. Quote, golly gosh, thousands of them. Now, this golly gosh nonsense. I can't find what would it be in the other translation or in the Greek, I'm, but it's really something. I don't know how I feel about the Theodoretus translation, but we are stuck with it now. Regardless, the point is that he's playing some absurd version of a woman. And then, then he regales the women with a long list of absolutely absurd invented stories in an attempt to suggest that the women are exactly as Euripides claims. And actually, he's holding on to most of their secrets. He's barely giving away any. That's how bad they are. He, as this fake woman, says that he personally, just days after he was married, had a lover sneak in. That his husband tried to stop him and he lied, saying he had a stomach ache before sneaking out and having his lover take him by the altar of Apollo while he hung on to the Daphne tree. Now, p pronouns are tricky here. I'm not going to say she because I don't want to suggest that this is anything other than an ancient comedic story of a man infiltrating a women's space, but... Obviously, Menesilchus is pretending to be a woman as he's telling this story. Still, Euripides never mentioned that story, he reminds the women. He's keeping that secret. He goes on, quote, And has he said anything about the fact that when we get desperate, we screw our slaves and our mule drivers? No, he hasn't. What about the morning after the night before? You know, the mornings we chew up all the garlic that our, so that our hubbies won't suspect us of screwing around while the poor buggers were spending the whole night guarding the city walls. Have you seen Euripides say anything about that? Well, have you? Of course not. Kind of wish I hadn't decided to cover this play, but here we are. The point, to be clear, is to uh, play on wild and over-the-top stereotypes. I don't think even Aristophanes is suggesting that women did these things, or I hope not. But I mean, maybe we should find it refreshing to even have the notion mentioned that women could be like doing things for themselves, finding pleasure outside of their marriages if they needed to. I mean, that's not the point. I don't know. It's just kind of nice to see flawed women in plays still, even if the whole point is that they're all mad that Euripides portrays flawed women in his plays. It's dark. Can you tell I'm having trouble? Uh, we must power through. I will not leave this unfinished just because it's fucking weird and highly problematic. Minasilicus goes on. He's got an enormous fucking speech about the things he suggests that women do. Uh, things that Euripides isn't tattling on, he says. Like, you know, when you're trying to hide your boyfriend from your husband so you uh, tuck him under your dress. You know, normal stuff. Or a woman who convinced her husband that she was in labor for 10 days, uh, all while secretly she bought another woman's baby to pass off as theirs. Sure. Of course, the logistics of that, Minnesilicus suggests, uh, meant that the woman bringing the baby uh, to the new home kept him hidden in a large pot with honeycomb in his mouth so he wouldn't cry. Again, you know, totally normal things that women do to deceive men. <laughs> Minnesilicus finishes this speech by saying that Euripides, quote, gives us no more hassle than we deserve, honestly. 
And well, you might imagine the chorus of women at the Thesmophoria do not take this speech well. <laughs> the chorus is very angry and this translation uses a lot of words that I don't care to use. So won't be quoting what they say, but they are not happy about the things Minasilica suggested that women do. And I mean, do we blame them? We do not. Uh, we do, however, find ick in this translation. I'm going to paraphrase more now because this dude really loves to use the words like slut and whore. Good times. Anyway, there's lots of jabs at Euripides' character choices. How he writes about women who've been assaulted uh, as though that's only meant to make women look bad. Which just Anyway, this play is messed up. Poor Phaedra gets a lot of blame for Euripides' play Hippolytus and Penelope gets a lot of praise not cliche at all. They all seem to wish Euripides would just write plays about women like Penelope instead. Make everyone look good. This play is a misogynist fever dream. Women. They hate them. God. They only want to see virtuous women like Penelope on stage. Anyway. Um, this is what I love about actual real Euripides, because he didn't just write plays about women like Penelope, or even Dianera, who's a badass, but also very much still the model woman in other ways, beyond, you know, accidentally killing her husband. Meanwhile, Euripides has given us Medea and Phaedra and Helen. But again, we are too deep into this play for me to give it up now, no matter how many times I've considered it. Minasilicus goes on and on and on, proposing countless stories of women doing absolutely absurd things. They're meant to play on stereotypes, meant to amplify the stereotypical way men see women and vice versa but they are still painful to read. The fighting between Minasilicus and the women devolves with one of the women who spoke earlier, Mika, making the biggest arguments against Minasilicus's misogynist bullshit. She's ready to fight the man, ready to punch him straight in the face. I mean, good for her. But before she can get to do that, um, they're interrupted by Cleisthenes, a man who is described similarly to Agathon, He's effeminate, and he's the bottom in his relationship, and thus, according to the Athenians, he's basically a woman. Remind me why I thought covering this play would be a good idea. I thought this play would make for a good fit for International Women's Month, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it's about a women's only festival. Why on Gaia's earth do I think I can just assume that a play will be a good fit for something? And one written by Aristophanes, no less? <sighs> An episode about just the Thesmophoria. That would have been great. Silly of me to assume that Aristophanes didn't just write a misogynist screed and place it at the Thesmophoria. <laughs> I'm sure there are arguments against that reading, and I can't wait to hear them, but right now I am too deep into this to see anything else. But I did have a conversation episode uh, that I recorded before recording this, thankfully, that I can now assure you is coming out on Friday and won't reassure you of everything, but does make this play better in its own way. <laughs> Again, we're just too deep into this for me to give up on the series, but I seriously considered it. We've only got one more episode, though, to finish it off and maybe have Aristophanes redeem himself. Gods, I miss reading actual Euripides. <laughs> and speaking of International Women's Month and how poor a choice this play was for it, once next week's last episode on the Thesmophoria Zeusai is sorted, 
we're going to get to some actually good and interesting women's specific episodes. Do not worry. That's mostly for me. It's reassuring myself because gods, this play. In some ways, it's entertaining and interesting and worth covering. And in some ways, it is not. But regardless, I do wish I hadn't done it at this moment. But here we are. Anyway, to finish off this attempt at a comedic episode, gods, no, I didn't make it very funny, and I'm sorry for that. But we will end, as we always do, with a reading of a five-star review from Apple Podcasts. This one comes from a user named Hulk Carr from the States. I'm not going to read the entire thing because it was super long, but super duper lovely. And it was long because this person actually went through the trouble of updating their earlier review after they had finished binging the whole show. And gods, I appreciate that so much. So seriously, thank you. She's live and she loves this stuff. I only recently, about three weeks ago, learned of this podcast and started listening from the first episode. I'm now on episode 70, so I guess you could say I'm hooked. Addendum, February 23rd, 2023. I discovered this podcast in August of 2022 and decided to listen to every episode from the beginning to the present. That's over five years of an ongoing podcast, so the finish line moved steadily along. Today, I achieved my goal, listening to the most recent episode from two days ago, and I must say, my enjoyment of this podcast has only increased over time. It's been great to hear host Liv improve over the years and her work and her enthusiasm and excitement increase. It's been a fun ride, and I'm looking forward to finally to listening to episodes in real time. Thank you, Liv Albert. Honestly, thank you. That was really nice. I really, my favorite thing is when people see what I see, which is just how much better and more interesting the show has gotten over time. So thank you. Let's Talk About Bits Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. No, it was not Michaela's idea to cover the Thesmophoria Zeusai. That is totally on me. <laughs> Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. You nerds are all the best, and I seriously love you for staying with me through this episode. Whew. Just one more, I promise, and hopefully it'll redeem itself. Time will tell. I am Liv, and I love this shit, even if I'm learning I do not particularly care for Aristophanes. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. 
Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. 